Our text this morning is Proverbs chapter 9. You might wonder what led me to preach out of Proverbs. It's really born out of a recent, oh, a few months or so ago, and my own personal devotions. I was in the book of Proverbs, and it's an interesting book. Um, a challenging book for me, especially when you get to chapter 10 all the way to, say, chapter 29, where it's a collection of many small proverbs. And, you know, if you're in a Bible reading plan, you you feel like you're drinking out of fire hose. If you just read, you know, Proverbs 10 or Proverbs 11, and you have all these different collections. Sometimes they aren't necessarily connected, so maybe the flow of thought isn't there. And, yeah, it's kind of like, wow, it's just, it's sometimes hard to, uh, for me, with Proverbs, just being frank with you. But the first nine chapters are different. The first nine chapters form an introduction to the book of Proverbs. And... A lot of it is Solomon giving and pleading with his son to receive his instruction. And as a loving father does, he cares deeply for his son. And he is unburdening his son with two ways, the way of wisdom, the way of folly, and the results of these two different ways. And when you get to chapter 9, this is the last chapter in that uh, section, it forms a type of bookend for the first few verses in chapter 1. And as I was reading this in my personal devotions, I got pretty excited because in this section that we'll soon read is you'll find out there are two invitations And there are two destinations. There's a parallelism, a contrast that goes on in this um, chapter. And this section became precious to me in my own devotions. I I got really excited. There's a middle section here. And um, the Lord continued to work it into my soul. And so when Pastor John asked, would you like to preach? I thought, yes. Um, this is my text. And so I've been working at developing it um, to preach it here. So all of us, you get to my age, you've had multitude of invitations in life, more than you can remember, tons of invitations. You children have experienced invitations, some Um, you might not even be aware of. You just kind of go along with the ride. Your family was invited to invitations. Our text today gives us two invitations. Everyone is invited. We'll, We'll see that from this text. And the implications of these two invitations are eternal. You will not, and one in particular is the most important invitation anyone ever receives. So this is an exciting text. It's also a weighty text. So with those introductory remarks, um, let's read Proverbs chapter 9. And as we read this Proverbs I want you to think about these questions. Children, think about these questions with me. You can find the answers to these questions. So the first question is, what are the invitations in Proverbs 9? There's two of them. Can you find them? Second question, who offers the invitations? Where do the invitations come from? And then the third question, what are the outcomes of accepting each invitation? Let's read Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. 
She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Why do I shout? Trying to be in the text here, right? Where's, where's wisdom sending these messengers? Highest places in the town. No microphones back then. Okay? Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still or he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says... Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we tremble at your word. More importantly, may we tremble before you. You are holy. You are righteous in all of your ways. And may the text of Scripture, this text that we just read, be quickened to our souls. Keep me within the boundaries of truth. Guard my thoughts. Guard my words. Only when I speak Scripture directly can I be for sure that is authoritative? And as I give interpretive remarks, I pray that it would be accurate. And where I falter and fail, would you cover my sins? Would you help us as hearers to be like the Berean Christians who listened eagerly to your word and then would go home and search the scriptures to see if those things are so. And so I open myself to you and to these people for accountability. And I also pray for assistance. Help my frailty. Help my weakness. Help all of our frailty. Help all of our weakness. For we are all bound with the same infirmity of the flesh. 
and our old nature and our sinful nature is ever with us. So it's to you that we look and to you that we pray that you would attend to our needs during this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, did you catch it, children? What are the invitations that we just read about? Anybody? And adults. Stephen. Yes, two invitations. Wisdom is personified. Folly is personified. Wisdom invites to her house. Folly invites to her house. And we just answered the second question. Who offers this invitations, these invitations, wisdom and folly? What are the outcomes of these invitations? Did anybody catch that? Life and death. Simple. Life and death. Grave. Grave outcomes. This is why I said that the invitation to death, that's not an important invitation, but it is an invitation. The most important invitation is the invitation to life. And so that's why I said this is the most important invitation that you and I will ever receive. Well, the book of Proverbs is in the genre of wisdom literature. And in this section, I want to think about this as um, two predominant sections, even though our ESV translation breaks it up into three paragraphs. I want to think of the third or the second paragraph as continuing the thought of um, how we respond to wisdom. And so it's a protracted um, discussion of, of what wisdom is inviting us to and how one responds to this invitation. So let me have two main headings, uh, the first one being feasting with wisdom, and then we'll look at eating with folly. And I do not say feasting with folly because the character of what you eat is even different. Wisdom, however, it is a feast. So what does wisdom do in the opening verses? Well, she prepares for her guests. Did you notice all of the verbs that occur in the first few verses? She has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. She has sent out her young women to call. Uh, Wisdom is active. She's productive. She's full of industry. And not only that, not only is she active and full of industry, but what is the provisions that she provides? Aren't they lavish? She builds a house. There's no mention of that with Lady Folly. She has a house. But Lady Wisdom builds this house And what are the characteristics of this house? Well, it's supported with seven pillars, seven hewn pillars. Um, And it's hard for me to say with surety what is meant by a house with seven hewn pillars, what might be the significance of that. But I think it's fair to make at least these observations. Seven in the book of, uh, or in the Bible itself, is the number of completion or perfection. And so we have seven pillars here in this house. Um, Another thing that I tend to think of with pillars is they're supporting structures. They're something to hold um, the house together, to give it strength, to give it stability. And so these pillars are supporting this superstructure. And then the fact that they're hewn, and I could be incorrect in this, but I tend to think of aesthetic beauty Uh, Maybe not, but certainly a hewn pillar would require work, which does go back into this industrious nature of wisdom. See, wisdom is busy, active, providing, and it's a lavish provision. 
Isn't this consistent with God's character? And when you think of God, who is God? His ways are perfect. His ways are complete. How about the first week in creation? The first week of the universe, seven days. And at the end of six days where he created all of the universe, God steps back and what does he say? It is very good. It is very good. Um, his ways not only are perfect and complete, but his ways are secure. They're solid. They're enduring. They're strong. They stand the test of time. Do you recall when Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount? He exhorted his listeners to obey his teachings. Um, and then he likened that to building one's life as a house on a solid rock. And what do we know about building on a solid foundation? Jesus tells us, we know by experience, that when the storms come, when the winds come, when the rains beat on that structure and the floods rise, because it is a strong foundation, that building remains firm. It stands the winds and tests of time. But not so for the person who disregards Christ's strong, steady, stable truth. That is to build one's life, one's house, on sand that is shifting, that is washed away, that in a storm, there's no foundation, and so what happens? The house collapses. But not so with wisdom. Wisdom builds this beautiful, strong structure just like the Lord, because wisdom is an attribute of his. We know this because if you were to turn back in uh, chapter 8, if you just flip back a page, maybe if it's a page back for you, in verse 22 it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. And then it goes on to talk about how wisdom was employed in the creation of the universe. Similar to when Um, God confronts Job towards the end of the book and talking about his character that created the universe. Our God, his ways are beautiful. And so wisdom, she provides a lavish feast. And there is a stability in what she offers and She provides a sumptuous feast. Notice the characteristics of the feast that she is providing. She slaughtered beasts, plural, beasts. Not one beast, but beasts. There's an indication of abundance, of bounty. She has mixed wine, which was probably a diluted form of wine anywhere from one to eight parts of water as opposed to offering strong drink. And it might have included spices mixed in also. And then in verse 5, we read that she provides bread. You see, she is setting a table that is very inviting. That is a table that one can come for nourishment. One can come for satisfaction. She prepares for her guests... And it gives the impression of nothing spared. No corners cut. There's lavish abundance. It just beckons people to come. And nothing about this preparation is unattractive. Rather, everything about it attracts guests. Next we see... That wisdom invites her guests. The invitation is clearly announced. She sends her young women to call the guests. More than one messenger is sent. And these messengers position themselves at the highest places in the town. It's a place where the passerbys could see them. It's an invitation that is clear. It's announced. And... It beckons the passerbys to come. <clears throat> Note also that the invitation is universal. 
<clears throat> so the invitation is clearly announced, and the invitation is universal. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says. Now, why do I say this is a universal invitation? Well, it begs the question, who is simple? Who is simple? Does that include some people? Or does that characteristic include every person? Well, Proverbs 22:15, we, we have to look no further than the book of Proverbs to answer that question. There we find that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So those of you who have parent or children, those of you who have been around children, those of you who can remember and aren't too old, but can remember being a child yourself, which I think includes all of us here. Do you have to teach a child to lie? Do you have to teach a child to hit other children? Do you have to teach a child to throw temper tantrums or be, disre be disrespectful? And the list goes on. You see... Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. All of us have this foolish sin nature within us. And that's because the Bible in Romans chapter 5 talks about how that all of us have Adam's sin nature. The psalmist in chapter 14, or, or Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3 says this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none, none, none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You see, our foolishness is part of the Adamic nature. We're born with it. Um, we, we call it total depravity. It has affected every part of our being. So when wisdom invites, she is inviting those who are simple, those who lack sense, those who are foolish. And that would be every person apart from Christ. This invitation is open to everyone. Come, come. Isn't this the nature of grace? Come, all that are unworthy and feast at my table. Feast at my table. All who are unworthy. You know, your only qualification needed to come is your unworthiness. Isn't that astounding? This lady wisdom is saying, you're unworthy. I have provided a bountiful Feast, a lavish feast. I have prepared this house for you. Come, come, feast at my table. And the invitation has two parts. There's two parts to this invitation. And it goes like this. Um, turn in here slash leave your simple ways and live. And then there is the second part, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Also walk 
in the way of insight. So there's two things going on here in this invitation. There is the invitation to turn and leave your simple ways. In other words, leave your foolishness and live. You see, the implication is, in my foolishness, my foolishness leads to what? Death. Lady Wisdom is saying, I'm offering to you life. I'm offering you life at my table. A bountiful supply. But here's here's what you have to do. Turn from your foolish ways. Turn. Turn, simple ones. Leave. Forsake. And then come and eat of my bread. Drink of the wine I have mixed. Walk in the way of insight. What is she saying? Embrace wisdom. This is the positive action. So folly is saying, turn from your simple foolishness. By faith, embrace wisdom. Come to me. This is what we read of Jesus. The first message that Jesus spoke in Mark's gospel is what? Repent and believe the gospel. Turn and believe. Repentance and faith are opposite sides of the same coin. You cannot have faith without repentance. You cannot have repentance without faith. They come together. They're one package. And this is what we're seeing even in the book of Proverbs. Turn and believe. Turn from your foolishness. Believe in the wisdom of God. The result of this is life. This is what's at stake. Life. Now, who but the Lord could turn a time of repentance into feasting. Lady Wisdom is saying, turn from your evil ways. We don't like to be confronted with our sinfulness. But what she's doing is she's saying, come away from your sinfulness and live. Embrace wisdom and feast at my table. This is the character of who our God is. He's he's beckoning to souls. Turn and live. Feast at my table that I have. Isn't this the picture of the father with the prodigal son who has wasted his inheritance, has lived away from his dad. He knows what's best and yet has chosen the ways of evilness and to live in all of his foolishness. And when God, by his mercy, brings him to his senses, what does the prodigal son do? He runs in humility and comes to the father And the father runs to this prodigal and he embraces him. He clothes him and he gives him the best robe. He puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. He kills the fatted calf and he throws a feast to celebrate the safe return of his repentant son. Come. Children, have you tasted of the bounty of what God offers you? Adults, have you tasted of the bounty at Lady Wisdom's table? Or are you living in unrepentant sin and foolishness. Lady Wisdom says, come. You qualify. 
Come. Come. The next paragraph is where we sit at Lady Wisdom's feet and we learn. We learn that wisdom does things to the foolish guess. You see, when Lady Wisdom invites, it's not come as you are, leave as you are, stay as you are and leave as you are. She does say come as you are, but turn and believe, you see. And so what does Lady Wisdom do? She corrects. She reproves, which reproof is confronting someone with their wrongdoing. Correction takes it a next step, right? Uh, Correction is intended to change and to show you where you did wrong and then to show you how, how you can make it right. She instructs, so she corrects, she reproves, she instructs. Well, instruction gives the idea of trying to keep that which is right continue to be right. She teaches, which has a similar idea of instructing, could be a doctrinal component to it. And this is very similar to what we read in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, which is a a key verse for the inspiration of Scripture. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does the Word of God do? It teaches. It reproves. It corrects. It trains in righteousness. And it makes, makes us complete and then equipped for every good work. Now, we read here that there's only two responses to wisdom. There's the response of rejection. We read that by the scoffer. What does the scoffer do? That's there in uh, verses 7 and 8 um, of the scriptures. A scoffer attacks the one that corrects him. A wicked person, which is the same as a scoffer, he injures those that attack. If nothing else, just emotionally. You know, we've all experienced somebody correcting us, and we might not physically attack them, but have you ever given them the cold shoulder? You know, we call it passive-aggressive. You know, there's a sense of attack going on. Um, The scoffer hates the reprover. So the first response is one of rejection. The second response is one of acceptance. And that is the person who is wise. The person who is wise, he loves the reprover. The person who is wise takes instruction and becomes wiser. He's teachable. She, he, is teachable and increases in learning. Now let's consider this wise person and that person's response. Was this person always wise? No. No, because we already covered the fact that we're born in sin. We have this Adamic sin nature. We are depraved. And so the wise person is born a fool. So at some point, every person who is characterized as a wise person has to come to the point to realize, I am not wise. I am foolish. I need to turn to Christ and live and to trust in him and him alone. Now, another question. Um, If he wasn't always wise, how did he become wise? Well, I've already kind of answered it a little bit. He accepted the invitation from Lady Wisdom to leave his simple ways and to walk in the way of insight. Another question. Is his wisdom perfect? Even as a wise person, is that person's wisdom perfect? I see some heads shaking no, and that's the correct answer. And the reason we know that is they would have no need to be reproved. If a wise person was perfectly wise, there would be no need for reproof. 
But here's the key character, or one of the key characteristics of a wise person, is that when you reprove them, they respond the correct way to reproof. Now, maybe not immediately, maybe not always the right way every time, but in their soul, they're oriented to understand that reproof is a good thing. I need to be reproved. This should be one reason we read the scriptures. We read the scriptures for a whole host of reasons, rightfully so. We read them for encouragement, for admonishment, for um, looking to the promises of God. But another reason we should be reading the scriptures is for reproof. And a wise person is actually oriented that way. So when a wise person reads the scriptures and the scriptures rebuke and reprove, it shouldn't take us by surprise. And, and that should actually be happening on a regular basis in our personal devotions. And so we say, oh, Lord, you've shown me once again. I know this is true. I know this truth. And, and yet I see there's, there's room for growth. I'm not where I need to be. Or maybe I've just blatantly failed in this area. Lord, would you forgive me afresh? Would you cleanse me? Would you help me to go forward? Would you change this about me? You see, a wise person is oriented to know that reproof is a good thing. And so, no, the wise person is not perfect because we read even here that he gets reproof. And when you give him instruction, he becomes still wiser. This is a growth. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. How is it with you? Does this characterize you? You see, this begins to get uncomfortable for us. Because now the scriptures don't leave us just comfortable in our sin. The scriptures confront and expose so we could ask these questions. Are you characterized by being a teachable person? Or do you resist being taught? How about do you actively seek instruction from wise people and the word of God predominantly, by the way? Or do you avoid them? You skirt around them. You'd rather not be in their company. Do you actively seek counsel from God's word, or is it a drudgery for you to read, study, and meditate on it? Are you faithful to attend church services to be taught by your pastor's teachers? Do you honor and obey your parents and others that have spiritual care for your soul? Answers to these questions start to expose. Are we foolish? Or are we wise? Again, no wise person is perfect in all of these attributes. It's what is the trajectory of your life? Where is it that you're headed? And if you find that in your soul, if you're just being honest with yourself as you're listening and you say, you know, this, I don't even know what you're talking about. But I, <clears throat> how can anybody be grateful for reproof? There's nothing in me that desires that or sees any good about that. Then wisdom says to you, repent of your foolish and wicked ways and seek wisdom. <clears throat> so how does one become wise? If this is so crucial, if this is so important, how does one become wise? How do you get wisdom? Well, verse 10 leads us into that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. Fearing God is when we begin to have wisdom. Knowing the Holy One is to have insight. Dan Phillips, commenting on this verse, um, says this, the parallels of fear of Yahweh, and knowledge of the holy ones teach us 
that fear of Yahweh and knowledge of him are related ideas. Hence, this is a fear that, catch this, clings. You ever think of it that way? A fear that clings rather than recoils. It is a fear that grounds a relationship on submissive reverence. Such fear and knowledge bring wisdom, which is skill for living in the fear of Yahweh and discernment, the ability to tell right from wrong, worthwhile from worthless. The psalmist expresses a similar idea. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If, if God marked our iniquities, and, and held them, and there was no opportunity for forgiveness, who would stand? But the psalmist goes on, and he says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be, what? Feared. It sounds counterintuitive. How, how can forgiveness lead to the fear of God? It does. It does. It leads to this fear of the Lord because you, when, when you are convicted of your sins, you are laid bare. You are exposed before God. There's nothing that covers your, your, your way before the Lord, your life before the Lord. You stand bare before him and you know I'm condemned, I'm guilty, I, I deserve punishment in hell. I deserve to be you know, abandoned, discarded, thrown away, to have all the weight of your just wrath against my sin because I am the sinner, I have committed the sins. And yet when God says, I give to you forgiveness, and of course we know from the gospel that it is because of what Jesus has done on the behalf of sinners. And we trust in him. That does not lead to a carelessness. That forgiveness leads to a grateful, reverential worship. And it actually heightens our appreciation for the law and the wisdom and the ways of God. Doesn't Paul teach this? In Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live righteously and soberly in this present world. He goes on to talk about we look forward to that coming uh, of the Lord. And so the grace of God causes us to appreciate and to be, uh, to, to appreciate the ways of God and to walk carefully. The opening of Proverbs helps us understand that fools naturally despise wisdom and instruction. It says in verse 7 of chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Dan Phillips comments on this verse, and he says, this verse impresses upon us that you and I absolutely must start out by learning where we stand before God. If the proper estimation of God and our place before him is not our premise, then all that follows is an increasingly wild miscalculation. If we are gripped by the fear of Yahweh, we are ready to learn and apply God's wisdom principles for life. We will accept both instruction and rebuke from the word equally. We will approach scripture to hear God speak to us. If we aren't straight on the fear of Yahweh, our approach, if any, will be utterly different. We will pick and choose after our fancies and prejudices. We might like this or that proverb, but we will remain our own lords, our own gods, and true knowledge will elude us. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom but fools they reject it but how does one possess the fear of God 
Is this something that you can just turn on like a light switch and declare, I will now fear the Lord? If you have your Bibles, look at Proverbs 2, chapter or, or 2, verse 1, starting in verse 1. And there we read, My son, if you receive my words, notice that, receive my words, and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then, then, You will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will what? Come into your heart. And knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So wisdom comes into the heart. Where does it come from? Who has it? Verse 6 of chapter 2. He gives it. God gives it. He is the one that has wisdom. So, you, I, we want wisdom. To where must we go? God. We must go to God. Did you notice, too, that there is a disposition to receive the word of God. There's a disposition of humility. There is an acknowledgement, I need what I don't have. There is a seeking after this, but I would also say that one of the most important things that I read here is in verse 3, to call out for insight is to, and to raise your voice for understanding. Do you ask for it? If you don't have it and you need it and God has it, ask him. Ask him. Humbly ask him while you're seeking for wisdom. Call out for it. Raise your voice. There's a New Testament parallel to this. We find that in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, what does it say? Let him ask God. Who gives what? Generously. How? He's not grudging. He's not withholding because he's just an ogre. I don't want to give it to you. No, ask him. Run to him. Ask God. Oh, God, I need wisdom. I'm a fool. Would you give it to me? He generously gives to all without reproach. He doesn't rebuke you when you ask him for this. And the promise is it will be given him. But you know what? Verse 6 says, mingle this with what? Faith. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The problem with that person is he is not viewing God accurately. And James corrects that wrong view. Go to the Lord. You lack wisdom. You're, You're admitting your foolishness. Praise the Lord. That's a big part of it. Coming to the point of recognizing, I'm a fool. I'm simple. I need wisdom. Now, go to God. Ask him. 
humbly ask him. He's not obligated to give it to you, but by his promises that we read in James, when you ask him and when you believe he is of the character that he wants to give this to you and will give when you ask, by faith he gives. He grants this wisdom. And to have wisdom from God is to have Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 31. Now, I listen closely here. This passage is so rich. Is so rich. Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you have wisdom, you have Christ. Why? Because we just read that Christ is the wisdom of God. So when you read Proverbs and all of the collection of proverbial statements, do you read them with this lens? This is who Christ is. This and, and the Proverbs are not just positive statements of truth, but also negative statements of error and falseness and evil. So we could say, this is also what Christ is not. So you'll read in the Proverbs about the sluggard and the rebuke that it is to us. Guess what? Jesus was not a sluggard. We know that Jesus was a busy man, always doing the will of the Father. We read in the Proverbs to guard what we say. Jesus taught that we will be held accountable for every word that we say. And on and on it goes. When we have Christ, we have the wisdom of God. And here's the precious thing. Not only do the Proverbs describe who Christ is. But the Proverbs confront us with our own sinfulness and magnify the need that we have for a Savior. We need one who perfectly fulfilled all the wisdom of God, who is the wisdom of God, so that he can be our wisdom, so that he can be our righteousness, so that he can stand and drink all the wrath of God. 
So how do we become wise? We humbly ask God for wisdom. We seek it with all of our heart. We ask God to save us through Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So what are the effects of fearing God? Verse 11, we read that it's a life that's not prematurely cut short. Think of Nadab and Abihu, the priests that were struck down by God from fire from the Lord, or of Ananias and Sapphira. Unless we think, oh, I'm still alive, must not be one of them. Uh, 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 wait. Are you perfect? We're not perfect. A wise person recognizes they're not perfect, but neither does a wise person want to stay there. A wise person wants to continue to grow, and we dare not become presumptuous with the grace of God. We also see here that uh, this first section closes. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. There's personal responsibility. Wisdom personally benefits the one that has it, and foolishness destroys the person that has it. And now we move to our last section, which I'm not going to spend much time on this. And this feels like a downer as you're reading through. You're, You're like, okay, here's... Lady Wisdom, she invites us to a feast of bounty. Why did God providentially position it this way where we end on a negative note in this book of Proverbs or in this chapter in Proverbs? Kidner comments this way, its position allows the chapter and section of the book to end on a shattering climax Its content corrects the impression that men are saved or lost merely through an isolated, impulsive decision. The choice is seen ripening into character and so into destiny. So folly, she prepares for her guests. Then again, do you really call it preparing for guests when you're stealing the food? Folly does no lavish banquet. She, she invites her guests to do what? Um, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Why do you have to eat the bread in secret? Probably stolen like the water was stolen. See, very much different characteristics. She's seductive. She's loud. She knows nothing. Actually, Lady Folly is the same characteristic of the guest that she's inviting. She herself is a foolish person. She has nothing to offer them of any eternal significance. She invites them, the guests, to come, stay as you are, but they don't leave. Where do they go to? It ends in death. She hides that secret. Verse 18, he does not know, the guest that is, he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is part of her seductive ways. Her guests die rather than live like what happens with those that heed wisdom's voice. What's at stake here? Eternal destiny. Life or death? Eternal life or eternal damnation? Whose house are you eating at today? Whose house are you eating at today? Let me conclude by reading precious words from our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 12. There's a parallel to this passage here. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Doesn't that sound like Lady Wisdom? But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. The invitation is come. Come. And if you see yourself unworthy, praise the Lord. You're invited. Come. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then verse or two later, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And we read sometimes from 1 Corinthians 11 during communion service. And Paul writes this, I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lady Wisdom prepares a table. And on that table... is mixed wine and bread. Jesus invites us. The basis of the invitation is his broken body and his shed blood. And he says, come, turn, and live. He Drunk the cup of wrath so that we can escape the just fury 
of God against our sin because we are foolish sinners. If you have not tasted of Christ, turn to him. I beg you, look to him. Cry out to him. Ask him for wisdom. Most importantly, ask him for Christ. Oh, we need Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the universal invitation that invites all the foolish, which is all of us, to come, to turn from our foolishness, to embrace the wisdom of God, which is the wisdom of Christ, to truly fear you, a fear that experiences um, the forgiveness that you have offered, the mercy and pardon that is in Christ, that reorients our affections, that gives us now a desire to grow and to know you and to walk in your ways even as imperfectly as that is. And then reorients us so that now when we approach the book of Proverbs, our orientation is one of humble learner wanting to um, know from you what is true and what is error and to orient our lives according to who we are in Christ. Lord, we have so much to grow, so much to learn, so much to change. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to any person here today that does not know you, that has not experienced the new birth, that is still loving their foolishness, be merciful to them. Expose their hearts to their sin and help them to look to Jesus Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.